This is hell. This is not the media. Like that guy was saying, this is hell. And if this was the more corporate establishment media, whether that's from the public or private sector, and really, who can tell the difference anymore? We would likely not be having today's guest returning for the umpteenth time and whenever we have questions about whatever is happening in Brazil. In today's case, the upcoming Saturday, October 30th runoff election for Brazil's presidency between former President Lula da Silva and current President Jair Bolsonaro. We always go to Brian Muir, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, a Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian's latest writing includes Media Spins Lula Victory as Defeat and Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats at Brazil Wire, and his writing at the website of Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting, fair.org, Uh, His writing there includes PBS and BBC team up to misinform about Brazil's Bolsonaro, and Fox seeks allies across the political spectrum to shill for Bolsonaro, which means we will definitely be talking about Saturday's up uh, this upcoming Saturday's election, but we'll also be talking media coverage of Brazil and the role played by the U.S. and Britain, and well, nearly everything that happens in Brazil. So yes, prepare yourself because the words Western imperialism will be uttered. Brian was on the show most recently back in June when I was between surgeries when we discussed his writing, including his then just posted article at uh, Brazil Wire, Brazilian Army Resumes Election Threats. Uh, Brian edited the spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine, which is titled The International Issue and features not only writers from around the world, but also a piece by our very own Jeff Dorchin, who delivers the moment of truth every week with the headline Schismatpolitan Awaken and a piece by Brian, No War But Class War, and writing from me, titled Is This Hell? How a Low-Budget Chicago Radio Show Became a Conduit of International Dissent. You can find our last nine years of interviews with Brian at thisishell.com when you search on Mirror. Brian has been appearing here on This Is Hell since 1999, but we only have our interviews from, I think, about 2014 on with Brian. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Find Brazil Wire online at Brazil Wire, that's with an S, and Telesur English at TelesurEnglish.net. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new by you? Your pairs have been a huge hit, not only at last week's office hours, but I took some down to uh, central Illinois when I was visiting family, and everybody loved them. Nice. Well, I guess... We're do a shout out to Oriana who farmed them. It, I just helped pick them, which is a lot of work. Uh, but they're from Oriana's Orchard, AsianPearFarm.com. She's been grafting trees, growing trees for like 35 years in the Driftless region. And apparently this year her harvest was really nice, but. <laughs> She needs a lot of help picking them. So Driftless region, there are a few. I didn't. I thought I knew of the one in like uh, Indiana, over by Michigan City, by the Michigan border. But I just found out there's also a Driftless region in Iowa as well. Driftless meaning that it's an area that was untouched by glaciers. Where was the Driftless region where you went to get these pears? 
This one is in the northwestern corner of Illinois, like right at the border of Wisconsin. Like this farm's like uh, ha- like 10 minutes away from Wisconsin. Very cool. It's a beautiful area. It is. Yeah, it's like one of the hilliest areas of Illinois. Like this pear orchard is on a hill. If you ever go to that region again, there uh, right on the Illinois side along the Mississippi River is a park called Mississippi Palisades. And it's just these gigantic like granite plutons sticking out of the ground where the water used to be, but it's no longer there. It used to be hundreds of feet higher. And it's a great place for hiking. And uh, the island out in the middle of the Mississippi River, I don't know if it's still owned by this company, but it used to be owned by the Blackwater Mercenary Company, the military contractor company. And they would do all of their practices and all their training out on an island in the Mississippi River. So while you're there enjoying beautiful nature, all of a sudden you're reminded of, oh, hey, the United States uses mercenaries all over the world. That's really great. Yeah, I've been there, but I did not know that about it. <laughs> yes, kind of creepy. Eric Prince and his uh, sister, Betsy DeVos, uh, the whole connection is really brutal. Visiting people out of town and having out-of-towners visit are both very enjoyable, don't get me wrong. Seeing people you haven't seen in a while and you truly love can be beautiful can be just a wonderful occasion but it's also always exhausting it seems far more exhausting since the pandemic started maybe it's because we are so used to being on our own socially distanced and sequestered from one another the virus made us or at least made me more anti-social than ever yet it also made me desire being social more than ever as well what what i think we need from now on whenever we have somebody visiting or whenever you have any kind of vacation at all when, if you ever get a chance to go on vacation, once that vacation ends, once that visit ends, we need a, a vacation from vacation to alleviate the culture shock of going back to work in what is sadly normal. But aside from my many theories on vacation and work and what's normal, Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, here in the United States, we have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. Indeed, a question from hell this week. (laughs) Whether you are in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? And we're getting a lot of really great responses on Twitter and on Facebook as well. So thank you, everybody, for responding so far. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering and the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century uh, flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not take any commercial money. We don't take any money from any kind of commercial sponsor. We uh, don't take any money from any kinds of grants. And uh, we are not profitable enough to be a not-for-profit 
So it's all on you. Please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page uh, at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or you can email chuck at thisishell.com as always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff reports on some old DNA he found. Gross. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. We received a second email from Andrew at Massive Bookshop. You may remember, or not, and if you don't, that's totally cool, but you may remember that back in September, Andrew wrote an actual letter to us explaining how he runs an online anti-profit bookstore out of his basement in western uh, Massachusetts called massivebookshop.com. He also sent a copy of the Anarchist uh, Review of Books because, as Andrew told us back then, it has already turned me on to some cool stuff that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. This time, Andrew writes, Hi, Chuck. We were thrilled to hear you mention the Massive Bookshop on air a few weeks back, but too bad the site wasn't working for you. In addition to supporting This Is Hell via Patreon, we also have a section of the site devoted to books featured on the show. Check it out at massivebookshop.com slash collections slash this hyphen is hyphen hell exclamation point. Massivebookshop.com slash collections slash this is hell. Since we're an all-volunteer operation, we're not great at keeping up with all the latest books. At one point, your producer Alex Jerry was emailing Patreon subscribers to let them know what books were coming up, and that helped. We don't need you to do any additional work, but it would be easy to share that info with us. It would definitely help uh, us keep the section updated. I'll, I also mentioned, uh, or wanted to mention that in addition to using profits from the bookstore to bail people out of jail, we also fully subsidize the cost of sending books to folks in jails or prisons up to 50 bucks a month. If any of your listeners know someone on the inside, it would be great to let them know about this, as often people use Amazon or other crappy outlets to do this. The main reason we started the Massive Bookshop was to provide an alternative to buying books online from those bastards. Anyone who wants to send books to someone inside can email us at massivebookshop at gmail.com. That's massivebookshop.com at gmail.com for more details on how this works. Finally, I want to thank you for having Cerise Castle back on the show last week. I'm just listening to the interview now, and she is an effing hero as far as I'm concerned. Stories like the ones she's told absolutely must be told, however hellish they are. Thank you for providing a platform for speaking this hell out loud. Andrew. And Andrew, I'm going to get you in contact with one of our producers, Dan Hill, who works with people who are being released from jail here in Chicago in the dead of night, uh, making certain that they have what they need to get home and be comfortable for the evening. So I'll be uh, connecting you with Dan Hill in the near future. And thanks again, Andrew. Uh, You are right. Cerise is amazing, and everyone should check out her new podcast, A Tradition of Violence, which is based on her 15-part award-winning investigation into deputy gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. 
And if you don't think you have gangs within your local police department, you're probably not looking hard enough. Also, thank you for what you are doing with the Massive Bookshop. Listeners, again, if you want to find out about Massive Bookshop's program on getting books to people on the inside, or if you want to find out how you can otherwise... uh, Support Massive Bookshop's good work. Email massivebookshop at gmail.com. And finally, we appreciate you, uh, uh, Andrew, posting books to be featured on the show at massivebookshop.com slash collection slash this hyphen is hyphen hell. There's no exclamation point at the end. Uh, I am taking next week off in the show while Sebastian, Lindsay, and Dan sit in playing their hand-picked selection from our 26-year archive of interviews. And uh, keeping our listeners informed as to what will be featured on the show is the exact kind of thing we will be updating and getting back to doing in the upcoming week while I'm taking a week off from work so I can, you know, work. You, too, can message us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter, or email us at chuckatthisishell.com, as Andrew of MassiveBookshop.com did, with your constructive and destructive uh, criticism, your personal thoughts and reflections, as well as guests and topic ideas. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that conversation. Coming up, contributor Brian Muir returns to get us up to date on all things Brazil. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Brian. Again, the question from hell is here in the United States. We have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you are in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear is its worst possible outcome. We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. On October 2nd, Brazilians went to the polls to cast an historic vote. However, despite former President Lula da Silva Receiving more than 6 million votes, more than his closest competition, he did not attract more than 50% of the vote. This means Lula will now go to a runoff election happening this Saturday, October 30th, against the person who got the second most votes, and that would be the incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro. The election was the story of uh, two amazing comebacks, when you think about it. One for Lula, who was falsely imprisoned during the last presidential election, despite at the time being the favorite to win. And Bolsonaro, who was down by 21 points in polls as recently as June, yet lost to Lula in the first round of elections by less than five points. Aside from those two comebacks, immediately following the vote earlier this month, there was also the return of attacks on Lula in the international media and threats that the Brazilian military may intervene and undermine the vote's integrity. Here to help us figure out what the hell is happening in Brazil, Brian Mir returns to This Is Hell. Brian, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It always. I was listening to the whole show on the feed, and I wish I could have jumped in on a bunch of things you've already been saying. You know, <laughs> but it's, it's not Brazil. But like, why isn't there an anarchist review of cookbooks? Oh, that's what I'd like to know. <laughs> so that'd be really great. I've often thought that if I was going to be interviewed online in a video feed, I would just want because everybody always has a bookshelf full of books behind them. I would just want inexplicably. Just have cookbooks and not not mention <laughs> one word about it at any point in time. It's just like I wanted to do the show in a bowling alley while bowling was happening behind me without ever mentioning that bowling was happening behind me. I always thought that would be great just to screw with people's heads. 
I should do one of my stand-ups for Telesur in a bowling alley this week. It's a great idea. Yeah, without ever mentioning the fact that you're in no, a bowling alley. I'm in Sao Paulo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Again, so so last time you were on the show, uh, back in mid-June, we were uh, talking about the military and its possible threats against the upcoming election. October uh, 2nd, Brazilians went to the polls, and the top voting vote-getting uh, presidential candidate was former uh, President uh, Lula da Silva. However, he did not attain a majority and will face incumbent Jair Bolsonaro uh, this weekend. Bolsonaro is a former military officer and is favored by the military. What was the nature, just so people, just get people caught up, what was the nature of the threats being made about the election? And did Brazil's military increase or de- decrease their threats regarding the election? Well, the threat was that they simply weren't going to accept the results of the election if Lula won. And that threat is still ongoing. And so um, for like a year and a half, Bolsonaro has been claiming without providing any evidence that there's serious flaws with the country's electronic voting system, which, you know, there's never been a recorded or proven case of fraud with this electronic voting system since it was installed in the 1990s, because each ballot box is separate. They don't connect to each other. So the most that a hacker or something could do would be to, like, affect one box. There's no way of hacking into the entire system. But he's been lying for a year and a half. And that constitutes actually election fraud in its, in its, in its own, you know, like saying that without giving any evidence that the elections don't work. And he's been saying that because of that, the military is going to install order if he doesn't win, because it's so obvious that he's going to win because all the polling agencies are fraudulent. They're all run by communists. And, uh, and so he created a special commission in the military, in the army to monitor um, the, to do a kind of audit of the elections based on a really small representative sample of like 360 ballot boxes. And so they did it, but there, no complaints have come out. And then so the electoral courts ordered the military to release the results of their audit, and they're refusing to do it. They're saying they're only going to do it after the second round election, meaning they're sitting on something and if lula wins they may try to claim fraud you know so how which is bs because like inter inter inside sources in the army say they didn't find any fraud you know (laughs) so how effective is that anti-communist religion that is is so effective here in the united states how effective is that in brazil well it's basically the same because during the excuse for the 1964 military coup, which was implemented with heavy support from the CIA and U.S. government, uh, the U.S. government, President Johnson even had like Navy ships off the off off the coast of Rio de Janeiro, ready to jump in if needed at the time of the coup. Um, the the excuse for that coup was the threat of communism. So we had a military dictatorship that censored everybody, controlled all of the narratives in the media created media, created a national TV network to spread its propaganda for 25 years, just daily uh, infusing Brazilian public daily with anti-communism messages. So there's this deeply installed anti-communist sentiment in anybody who's like over the age of 40, really. Uh, So even you see it in the U.S. too. I mean, even people who normally seem leftist or progressive or whatever just going off the handle 
if you say anything positive about, for example, the Soviet Union, you know, because we've all been brainwashed with that crap too. You know, anyone who's over a certain age in the U.S. who was a, around during the Cold War, so it is effective. You know, it does work. But with his case, he's used it so much; it's turned it almost into an absurdist kind of thing. I mean, like he calls the Economist magazine, you know, the the world bastion of economic liberalism. He calls it the e-communist. <laughs> you know, he's called. I mean, it was ridiculous when Trump called Biden a communist, but it's even more ridiculous to call the economist communist. <laughs> you mentioned something earlier that I'm just curious about. Why aren't those who falsely claim voter fraud held accountable for the, that very voter fraud of lying about voting? Why, why, is, that, why is that never seen? Why is uh, lying about voter fraud never seen as a fraudulent act, action when it comes to elections? Actually, it is, Chuck, and they are being held accountable now. Basically, Brazil has a really interesting system, a centralized system for like overseeing every step of the election process and, um, you know, penalizing people for fraud and things like that. It's called the Electoral Court, and it, it's something that springs into action during the election seasons, which are very short in Brazil. You know, the, the election seasons officially are six weeks long. This one's been extended to 10 weeks because of the second round. And then there's a pre-electoral season of a few months. And so the Superior Electoral Court is, is, uh, is made up of mostly of Supreme Court justices, and they have the right to investigate and penalize people for committing election fraud. And so they're treating his you know, lies about fraud as a kind of fraud. And so they are not letting him use, make these allegations in his campaign commercials. In Brazil, it's a really interesting system that limits the influence of corporate funding in that um, the federal government, all television stations in Brazil are concessions. They're officially owned by the government and they're, they're like rented, the licenses are rented by the stations. And so it's part of being a public, uh, publicly licensed, you know, um, company to, to a, a, a government concession, all of that stuff, they are required to air free campaign commercials for all the candidates, depending on how much, how much each party or coalition has, how many senators and congressmen they have. And so every night at the same time, and once during around midday at the same time on every radio and TV station in the country, they run these free ads for the candidates. And so Bolsonaro has been barred from using from making these allegations in these ads, he's been barred from making them on his social media accounts. And so what's happened is last week, all of their powers and um, regulatory, you know, ability and stuff was created basically during the newspaper and television age. And so one of the reasons Bolsonaro won in 2018 was he was able to repeatedly circumvent um, the regulations, the law, using this lag time like he would air all of these commercials and circulate all of this nonsense on social media to try and make it look like his opponent fernando haddad was a pedophile and then the courts would say okay that's wrong this is disinformation you have 48 hours to pull it off your social media well in 48 hours everything viralizes so last week they reduced this amount of time compliance time from 48 hours to two hours and so the New York Times wrote this article about, oh, my God, this looks like judicial 
overreach. It looks like a threat to free speech. Twitter and YouTube are now being ordered to pull things off the air. My God, that's censorship. I was like, no, it isn't. It's the law. You know, like you can't run a television commercial in the United States telling children that they can eat, you know, comet detergent and it'll make them happy. That's against the law. That's not a free speech issue. These are commercials. All advertising in Brazil is regulated, including political advertising. So it's it's depressing that a, a company like the New York Times, which for six years never complained of judicial overreach of this U.S. DOJ-backed judge, Sergio Moro, as he, for example, wiretapped the standing president illegally, you know, edited the audio to make it look as bad as possible, and then released it to the media two days before her impeachment hearing. The New York Times didn't declare, didn't complain about judicial overreach. But now this 90-year-old court system that, you know, that, ha that is a branch of the rule of law is only trying to enforce its own laws. And the U.S. is, you know, the New York Times is acting like it's this big, oh, my God. And, you know, obviously Greenwald's jumped on that bandwagon too. Oh, freedom of speech. Why can't, you know, why can't Bolsonaro uh, lie that Lula is an organized crime figure anymore? <laughs> on, an, on a govern on a public election ad. <laughs> so you uh, right. Let's talk about Lavajado just for a second, because uh, you know I always assume that people this might be the first time that they've heard about any of this stuff. So you write uh, the, yeah. you write the fact that Lula spent 580 days as a political prisoner, specifically to remove him from the 2018 presidential election, as demonstrated in the Vaza Jado leaks revealed by Walter Delgatti and published in the Intercept. And after proving his innocence, managed to become the first challenger in modern Brazilian history to beat an incumbent in the first round uh, should be treated as one of the greatest political comebacks of the last century. So Vazajado or car wash leaks are the leaked conversations in the Telegram app about the actions, decisions, and operations of officials conducting investigations for Operation Car Wash, Operation Lavajado, uh, that show that the ruling judge in court cases regarding Lavajado, Sergio Moro, provided insider information to prosecutors assisting the Federal Prosecutor's Office in building cases, directing the prosecution requesting operations against relatives of witnesses and suggesting modification in the phases of the Lava Jato operation, as well as providing informal clues and resource suggestions to the prosecutor's office to convict the former Brazilian president Lula on corruption charges. In other words, the anti-corruption probe had become corrupt with a clear conflict of interest by the presiding judge meant to criminalize the political opposition. But in an article by Ricardo Brito and Graham Slattery at Reuters in February 2021. When Lavajado was finally abandoned, Brito and Slattery say of the leaks that had left the future of uh, car wash in doubt, even as its work remained popular among Brazilians. Was Lavajado, despite being corrupted, popular in Brazilian, uh, Brazil, at least at one time? It was popular with the right wing because it was used to jail, you know, the guy who would have easily been elected president lula right it was a it was a it was what put bolsonaro in power and that's why the first thing bolsonaro did after he got elected was he appointed the judge from lava jato sergio moro to be his uh justice minister in a clear conflict of interest remember the one the one thing you left out in that brief description of vaza jato leaks was that they also showed that all of this collaboration between the judge and prosecuting team was done uh, 
under the tutelage of the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI, a group of 18 FBI agents led by Leslie Bakshis uh, met with the Lava Jato prosecutorial team every 15 days for like five years and coached them through uh, all of these steps that they took to enable Jair Bolsonaro to get elected, you know, and to get blew out of the elections. So, uh, and this is a matter of public record. I mean, there's been U.S. congressional inquiries about this. The DOJ pointed out that it's been writing about its role in the Lava Jato investigation, car wash investigation, on its own website since 2016. I mean, you can read them talking about it. So, anyway, but I know it's complicated. If no, if someone listening to this interview hasn't heard about Lava Jato and Operation Car Wash and stuff, this stuff can be pretty complicated to explain briefly. But I think. Thanks for giving it a shot there. Yeah, well, well, let's just stand it just for a moment because Brito and Slattery uh, also write at, uh, wrote at Reuters back in February of 2021. The car wash squad began its work in 2014, focusing on contracting draft at state-run oil company Petrobras, although its scope quickly expanded. Former presidents and uh, major companies throughout Latin America, thought for years to be untouchable, were implicated in sprawling corruption schemes uncovered by the investigators. According to its own data, keep that in mind. The Car Wash uh, Task Force was responsible for 295 arrests, 278 convictions, $4.3 billion in reals or $803 million in ill-gotten gains being returned to the Brazilian state during its roughly seven years of operation. Corruption probes into family members of right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro have made some conservatives suspicious of efforts to fight corruption as well. So was Lava Jato having success at some point in fighting corruption, not only in Brazil, but elsewhere, but it was eventually corrupted? Or was it always corrupt and we should be suspicious of any claims it made of fighting corruption? Uh, It was always weaponized. It was always meant as a way to take out, to neutralize or annihilate the Brazilian left. It was very selective in the way it prosecuted most of the corrupt businessmen that were arrested in Lava Jato were later uh, able to get massive sentence reduction and partial partial retention of illicit assets if they would read off of this script to implicate Lula and other members of the Workers' Party. And so there are cases of people being imprisoned, including Lula, based on one single coerced plea bargain testimony by a corrupt businessman who got 85% sentence reduction, millions of dollars in illicit asset retention in exchange for reading off of a script. I mean, the guy in the case of Lula, the guy changed his story three times before they let him out of jail. Um, so, you know, the, the main reason, like, yeah, corruption is a big problem, of course, but the main reason why I say it was corrupt from the beginning was that in 2015, the investigation was used to destabilize Brazil's economy during the lead up to the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, the illegal impeachment. And the way that it it committed this economic sabotage was that this judge, this corrupt judge, Sergio Moro, who later served as a minister in the Bolsonaro administration, uh, he ordered paralyzation of Brazil's five largest engineering companies and entire divisions of Petrobras Petroleum Company, including its shipbuilding industry, which was destroyed. So it bankrupted 
Brazil's largest companies, instead of treating them as being too big to fail, which is what the United States did with Lehman Brothers, you know, and all the other banks in the 2008 subprime mortgage scandal. All right. It's what Germany did with Siemens and Volkswagen during their corruption scandals. You know, they treated these companies as too big to fail. In other words, all right, we've discovered that there's five or six businessmen, executives in these companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people, you know, who are taking bribes. Let's put them in jail and keep the company working. In Brazil, they did the opposite. Oh, we found these five people in Odebrecht construction company that employs almost a million people who've been taking bribes. So let's shut down the company. Let's paralyze all of their operations until the trial is finished. And so uh, basically, there was a report in BBC Brazil that showed that of the 3.4% drop in GDP growth in 2015, the year before this coup against Dilma Rousseff, 2.8% of it was directly caused by Lava Jato paralyzing all of these industries. And the end result, according to Diazi, which is this research institute in Brazil, um, financed by the labor, labor unions and stuff that's been around for almost 100 years, they estimate 4.4 million job losses were caused by Lava Jato. And, and this is 2015. This is less than a year from when it started. So I would say it's been corrupt the entire time. And I would also argue that Reuters acts in bad faith when it runs articles like this that don't mention the U.S. Department of Justice partnership in Lava Jato. You know, partnership, which the Workers' Party argues wasn't just an, as an equal partner, but as a lead partner. The Workers' Party, the Brazilian Workers' Party PT, presented this report to the European Parliament in 2020 arguing that, um, that the, the entire operation was concocted in the U.S. and that the U.S. officials coached the Brazilian officials on how to do everything, mainly because it was Sergio Moro who convinced Dilma Rousseff to legalize coerced plea bargain testimonies like a year before Lava Jato started. And that was under the tutelage. That was after all of these joint sessions and training sessions held between the DOJ and Brazilian judiciary and federal police. So Lula was up by 21 points in polls in June. Less than four months later, Lula won 48% against Bolsonaro's 43%, much closer result than opinion polls had suggested, well, four months earlier. But Lula fell short of the more than 50% of valid votes needed to uh, prevent a runoff. So to you, what explains why Lula went from being 21 points up to winning by only five points, around five points, four months later. Was it bad polling? Was Lula losing favor with the public? Did Bolsonaro change something about his message or campaign that led to his rising popularity? What was it that caused Bolsonaro's surge prior to the October 2nd vote? It's simple. It's just money. The, there's a reason why an incumbent never lost a first-round presidential election in Brazil until last month, or until October 2nd, when Lula made history by doing it. Reuters estimates that uh, Bolsonaro has spent $52 billion in public funds to help his campaign. And some of the ways he did it were the following. You know, After the coup against Dilma Rousseff, they liberalized 
petroleum prices in Brazil and cook and natural gas prices unnecessarily because at the time Brazil was self-sufficient in petroleum. It produced its own petroleum. It refined its own gasoline. It didn't need to base the prices on international prices at all. You know, I mean, you look at a country like Venezuela, it's a big producer. It charges like five cents a gallon for gasoline because they make it right. You don't have to link it to international prices. This caused almost daily price fluctuations. And in the last year, gasoline and cooking gas prices have gone through the roof. So what Bolsonaro did was he removed money from the cancer treatment and prevention budget in the public health system in order to cover for a massive lowering of the gasoline and, and diesel and natural gas taxes. So a month before the elections, all of a sudden, the gas prices at the pumps dropped by like 30%, 40%. And so the middle class is like super happy with that. I mean, that's just one example. But the stand-in president has the entire budget of the federal government behind him to do things. He also, you know, raised, he, he, passed, he passed a temporary constitutional amendment enabling him, no, it's an emergency order enabling him, him to subvert to bypass the spending caps that the right wing put on health and education and things like that um, after the coup. And so you compare the amount of money he spent, not to mention all of the you know, Cambridge Analytica style micro-targeting that they're getting assistance from, from uh, Steve Bannon and people like that on, on the social media and all of this money coming. They're spending basically... The Lula campaign before October 2nd had spent $30 million on the elections, right? <laughs> Bolsonaro had spent over $50 billion. And despite, if you do the math, that's hundreds of times more money he spent. He was unable to win the election, you know? And for the last couple of weeks, Lula's lead has been holding, you know? And I'll also point out that the polls accurately predicted lula's vote they just didn't predict bolsonaro's vote very accurately you know so anyway the one polling agency that that accurately predicted the result is saying that right now that lula's about five and a half six points in the lead so it's really down to the wire you know and that's why this week is getting really crazy that's why one of bolsonaro's closest friends and one of his main campaign uh, organizers former Congressman Roberto Jefferson shot two federal police officers and threw hand grenades at them yesterday. In a, it, was, it started as a publicity stunt to discredit the election, the electoral system, but it backfired because he accidentally shot a woman police officer in the head. Oh, holy crap. So and, yeah, things are getting crazy. Like people I know are getting death threatened right now. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So so when it when it comes to what we were talking about the last time you were on, the military threats on the integrity of the election, you wrote a Brazil wire back in July that a group of Democratic lawmakers moved to help uh, uh, Bolsonaro make up uh, or help uh, yeah, Bolsonaro make up his mind this week by inserting an amendment into HR 7900, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, which puts continuation of all military aid to Brazil in 2023 contingent on non-interference by the Brazilian military in this year's presidential election. Amendment 893 entitled Neutrality of Brazilian Armed Forces during pre presidential elections requires that within 30 days of the passing of the act, which still has yet to pass 
Congress. The it, US did, sec- it, was, it didn't pass. They removed it. Okay. So the U.S. Secretary of State must deliver a report. This was the idea on Brazilian armed forces interference in the October 2022 presidential election to consider such actions as uh, statutory uh, guardrails on U.S. security assistance. You then quote a Washington insider who prefers to remain anonymous saying it calls for the discontinuation of security assistance, basically a way of saying you need to consider whether these actions amount to a coup, because if so, that would necessitate you a cutting off of U.S. assistance. So you're saying that this did not pass. Did even that threat of that possibility have any impact? And do you think it will have any it yes. have any impact so far on the election? Yeah. And will it have yeah. any impact in the future? Yes, I think it did. And it will. And there's other things that small group of Democrats are doing to try and ensure that there's no coup right now, um, surprisingly and I'm happy. I understand there's something, there's going to be some kind of announcement made on the 28th, you know, uh, this Friday, basically, or no, is yeah, this, this Friday, there's supposed to be a bicameral announcement about recognizing the elections. At least it's in the workings. You know, you never know with Democrats always <laughs> seem to find a way to screw things up, you know, but in this case, I think it's really cool if they, if they manage to do this. It's going to be pretty cool. So keep your eyes open on Congress and the Senate this Friday to see if they make any announcement about the elections down here. And that's Friday, uh, September or October 28th. The election is happening on Saturday, October 29th. I said October 30th. No, it's Sunday the 30th. Oh, Sunday the 30th. That was my mistake. Sunday the 30th. So you write. How could you mess that up, Chuck? I know, I know. Information. It's only like this super complicated, gigantic foreign country. (laughs) <laughs> with a totally different electoral system. You should know everything. <laughs> and well, I should know how to read a freaking calendar, you'd think. I'd realize that, well. that Saturday was October 29th and Sunday was October 30th. So <laughs> uh, you write that Brazil has two-thirds of the population of the United States. So Lula's mm-hmm. win uh, would be the equivalent of a victory by over 9 million votes in a U.S. presidential election, something which has not happened since 2008. This historic victory, which beat Lula's previous best first-round performance by 10 million votes, is even more astounding when the fact that Lula suffered character assassination in the national and international media on a nearly daily basis for nine years is taken into consideration. Did Lula face the same kind of character assassination as you describe it overseas within the local domestic media in Brazil? Was it the same thing that was the same things yeah. written about him in both places? Of course, yeah. I mean, the, all of the character assassination in the foreign media was based on lazy foreign correspondents just paraphrasing stuff they read in Brazilian newspapers. You even point out that Jacobin had written things that were opposed to Lula. Was Lula not left enough for leftist media in the United States? Jacobin wrote 38, published 38 consecutive articles, you know, accusing Lula of a variety of things that were either untrue or very lightly, you know, had some kind of light basis in reality. A lot of it having to do with calling him a neoliberal, which, you know, was the big naughty word in the uh, in the oddies and whatever, you know, like most people don't know what it really means in the U.S., it seems like, because they get confused by the word liberal. I'm not saying Jacobin doesn't know what it means, you know, but um, yeah. And so there is the there is this false narrative being perpetuated that, first of all, taking power in a capitalist system involves all kinds of contradictions, and the Workers' Party never had more than 25% of Congress and had to negotiate 
with right-wing parties in order to govern, get anything done, regardless. And so, of course, there was some, I mean, they didn't like immediately transform Brazil to socialism or something, but they did manage to run a government farther left-wing than any U.S. government in history. So instead of like saying it's not left enough, why not get some lessons and and apply them to trying to take power in the United States instead of just sitting around complaining, uh, glorifying in your own losses all the time and complaining that people who actually do take power aren't left enough for you. I mean, one of the key tenets of neoliberalism, if you read like David Harvey's Brief History of Neoliberalism, you know that one of its key tenets is minimum wage suppression. That's why no one ever raises the minimum wage in the US. When Lula was president, he, he increased minimum wage above inflation every year, every year. When he took office, the minimum wage in dollar terms was like $50 a month. When he left office, it was over $300 a month. You cannot call someone a, a pure neoliberal if he's raising minimum wage every year, because that's one of the tenants. Wage suppression is a tenant of neoliberalism. You know, you can't, you also, it's hard to call someone like a pure total neoliberal if he builds 19 new free public university campuses and, you know, doubles the enrollment in the free public university system while establishing quotas for the working class, which means that um, with a differential for Afro-Brazilians who make up 56% of the population, which means that now, as a result of him and Dilma Rousseff's presidency, over 50% of the students in these free public universities are Afro-Brazilian working class. You know, if you're wealthy and Afro-Brazilian, you, you do not benefit from any kind of affirmative action. That's a key difference between what they did in Brazil and what they did in the U.S., which essentially just benefited the black middle class in the U.S. You know, this kind of stuff is not, not neoliberal at all. Of course, yeah, there were, some, there were concessions made to big business the entire time. I mean, he sacrificed a lot of things, you know, but uh, the idea that um, uh, that someone, someone like uh, Lula is not left enough or something coming from the United States, I think is a little bit, you know, counterproductive, let's say. Let's just say counterproductive. Yeah, I thought you were going to say disingenuous, but I'll go with counterproductive. Yeah, well, I'll just give them, I mean, like, to its credit, Jacobin has greatly improved its coverage of Brazil since around 2018. So I can't, I don't want to be sour grapes. I mean, they're supporting Lula right now. That's what's important. You mentioned a stunning performance by housing movement leader Guilherme Boulos, who received over 1 million votes in Sao Paulo's statewide elections, making him the most highly voted candidate in a very conservative state. You also mentioned uh, electoral victories by those who are indigenous and those who are transgender. Why now? What has changed in Brazil? Has there been a major societal shift when it comes to social justice, when it comes to indigenous and transgender rights? Look, I would rather not dwell on the fact that two transgendered women were elected to Congress and emphasize the fact that the number of Afro-Brazilian women in Congress increased by over 20%. There's now, in a Congress with 514 members, there's now 91 Afro-Brazilian women, and, the, and a lot of Afro-Brazilian men as well. This is a direct result of a woman named Benedita da Silva, who's a hero 
in the Brazilian, the Afro-Brazilian rights movement. I mean, she was friends with Nelson Mandela. She's in, she's 80 now. She's a former kitchen maid and a member of Congress for the Workers' Party. And she spent years trying to pass legislation that required political parties to divide. There's already a law in place that said every party has to have candidates. They have to field candidates according to the demographics of Brazil. So half the candidates have to be women, half the candidates have to be Afro-Brazilian, whatever. But what had been happening is that these parties were fielding these candidates, but they were giving all of their party funds, all their election funds, to white men. And so in 2017, I think, this finally passed. She finally passed the law. And it just caused a massive increase in the number of Afro-Brazilians in Congress and in politics. And women, you know, women as well, and Afro-Brazilian women. So that was the, you know, that's something that happened that's really important. And you see it's caused an entire new generation of Workers' Party people uh, finally, you know, to come up and come up the ranks. And, for example, there's there's a former teachers' union leader named Carol D'Artura from Paraná State who she was, uh, she was a leader of the teachers' union during one of the most brutal labor strikes in the history of Brazil when the governor ordered his military police to open fire on teachers, hundreds of thousands of teachers who were picketing, there were 100,000 or something, a huge amount of teachers picketing, mostly middle-aged women, opened fire on them with rubber bullets. You know, this was a brutal strike, and she was one of the leaders of that strike. She became the first black city councilwoman in Curitiba's 360 or whatever year history it's a city that's 20% black. It's just outrageous, you know? And then, well, a city councilor, she pushed through affirmative action for city officials in a city council that was like 75% Bolsonaro supporters, which shows she's a very good negotiator. Two years after being in city council, she became the first black woman congresswoman from the state of Paraná, and she's still in her 30s. So this is an example of the kinds of, like, new leaders that are coming up through the ranks because of this change in the legislation. And it's really, I think it's really positive. You know, the PT itself, the Workers' Party, increased its number of seats in Congress by uh, 22%, 21%. They now have the same number of Congress people that they did when Dilma was president, despite all of these attacks, imprisoning the, the you know, historic leaders of the party and things like that. They're back to where they were when Dilma was president. You also point out that due to structural changes in the higher education system, as you were just alluding to, uh, pushed through during the Lula and Rousseff years, which resulted in hundreds of thousands of landless rural workers movement activists, the MST activists, entrance into the free public university system. The movement was able to join with other uh, social movements like people, uh, People's Youth Uprising and mobilize thousands of university students to canvas for MST candidates in cities across the country. So was this the idea? Was this Lula's and Rousseff's plan? Is, is this his education, their education policy fulfilled? Was the plan explicitly to incentivize and provide resources so students would become active and knowledgeable in politics and as they got older, become politically organized as its own party? Was that the idea? I don't think they increased access to the poor to university education specifically as an electoral strategy. But I'm pretty sure they they realized, like, for example, when they extended, they started sending outreach professors from public universities to MST, 
agrarian reform settlements. What the MST does is it it takes land that's been stolen by the big plantation owners, and if it's if it's not used in any productive way, they have a constitutional right to squat on it and start farming. And then eventually the government, they pressure the government to turn over land deeds. And and it's a kind of homesteading that's legal in Brazil, like it is, for example, in Alaska. And over the last 40 years, they've managed to get farm deeds for over a million family farmers, right? They've always had problems accessing higher education because they're out in the middle of nowhere, basically, and also connecting with leftists in the cities to mobilize politically. And so what's happened is, as you said, like because so many of them are now going to universities in the city, the universities have become this kind of bridge between the countryside and the city. You know, as as this as Lenin might say, like the hammer and the sickle. And so for the first time ever, they managed to put six people in state and national Congress. And they're hundred percent on board with Lula and the Workers' Party, and have you know always have been. So it just shows that there's some. Uh, it's a broad party and has some very far left-wing people within it, including the MST. You know, you write that Lula's historic performance placed him within the uh, within the spread of nearly all polls. Bolsonaro beat the spread by around five points. It is a ridiculous stretch of the imagination, bordering on bad bad faith, however, to treat this scenario as a defeat for the victorious candidate and his party. What do you think Lula would have to do to not only keep his momentum going so he wins the uh, election on October 30th, but also uh, moving forward as the returning president of Brazil? In office, what would Lula have to do to grow upon the Workers' Party's success? Well, first of all, he'll have to take office. First, he has to win, which, I mean, it looks like he's going to win, but I'm not going to, I'm not a, uh, psychic. I mean, he could still lose. Uh, then after he wins, Bolsonaro is telling his armed followers to surround all of the voting centers, all of the polling stations in the country while the results are being tallied. So Bolsonaro is encouraging terrorism. So he, he has to win and then he has to take office. Those are two different things. Like hopefully he can take office. If he does take office, He's just going to have to do what he did the first time around when there is a very antagonistic right to his taking power. And the PT only had 25 percent, 23, 24 percent of Congress. He's going to have to make deals with the center right, the big center right political parties that are a legacy of the military dictatorship. Because they form the majority of Congress and the Senate, and they tend to try and make deals with whoever's in power. Bolsonaro's block was misreported in U.S. media. Bolsonaro's allies did not take the majority of the House or Senate. You know, the majority is still these center-right parties uh, that are officially unaligned. And so that's what he'll have to do. Of course, it's going to be, there's a lot of work that has to be done to try and push the fascists back into, you know, back into hiding, at least get them to be more polite Stop openly, you know, threatening people on the streets and all of that crap. I mean, there's definitely been a change, and I attribute it entirely to social media uh, companies from the United States uh, spreading chaos and uh, arguments and things like that among people. Brazil used to be one of the most polite 
societies on the planet in which all of the class war and class struggle was hid behind this veneer of being like friendly and polite. And since Facebook's coming to the country, that's out the window now. In the, in the old days, the rich right wing assholes would at least be polite to union workers or, or women or poor people on the street and stuff like that. Now it's just like openly aggressive all the time. And so there's going to have to be some kind of like social work to try and take care of that somehow. And you mentioned that this neo-Nazi violence is very out in the open. It's very public. How do you think a, a victory by Lula would have, how do you think the neo-Nazis will react to that? Yeah. Goose stepping around, putting on fancy clothing. No, I don't know. <laughs> probably, probably more. I'm laughing, you know, but I'm laughing not to not, uh, you know, sound depressed, but right. probably more violence. <laughs> you know, a lot more violence. I think there's going to be. I mean, Brazil's a violent place anyway, so there's probably going to be some acts of terrorism. You also had an article at the website of Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting at fair.org titled Fox Seeks Allies Across the Political Spectrum to Shill for Bolsonaro. In that article, you talk about an interview uh, by Tucker Carlson with Jair Bolsonaro, where Bolsonaro is telling Tucker Carlson that he is standing up against China, that he is very much, in your words, uh, supportive of the new Cold War against China and Russia. And you, you write, the fact of the matter is... No no matter who is elected in October, Brazil will maintain its neutral stance in this new Cold War and will not engage in sanctions against China or Russia or any other geopolitical enemy of the United States, despite what? This is despite what Tucker Carlson is telling his audience Bolsonaro is all about. Taking sides against important trade partners does not make rational economic sense to Brazil, which has worked to remain non-aligned in conflicts between world superpowers for decades. Fox Corporation certainly knows this. Therefore, fear-mongering about China to drum up support for Bolsonaro can best be viewed as propaganda. And I'm certain that the Brazilian people, they are clearly aware of his relationship with China and Russia. So who is Bolsonaro playing this role of U.S. supporting anti-China head of state for? Who is his targeted audience for that message? No, he's not even doing it. That's just that's just uh, Tucker Carlson. He started off saying that kind of stuff for the first year of his presidency. He had to get rid of his foreign affairs minister for making too many racist comments of, about China. China was like, we'll just stop buying soy from you for six months if you don't shut up. No, he's not. He's not saying anything against China or, or Russia or anything right now. You know, he's, he's basically it looks like he's lost control of his own State Department. Because the State Department is acting consistently with the way it's always acted. You know, uh, it looks like he, he put in some people who he thought would fall in with a Steve Bannon approach to international affairs and stuff like that. And it just failed. Like, you know, it's, it's useful for elites to have some kind of fucking clown in office, obviously, these days. Right. I mean, look at look at England and the U.S. Hungary and all these places. But when push comes to shove, they're not going to let. Bolsonaro get involved in the new Cold War. Just doesn't it doesn't make sense for Brazil at all. I think you give clowns a bad name, my friend. Yeah, I know. I, it does give I, uh, my apology to all of the clowns. <laughs> so you also write that. So you're going to get those uh, 
uh, emails, and they all start with a horn honking. You, That's uh, the last thing I need, you know? <laughs> exactly. Clowns on my ass. <laughs> exactly. You're right. Full-spectrum dominance is a military term that was originally used to describe a battle in which uh, one Italian Marxist uh, philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, uh, viewed bourgeois media as fulfilling the task of maintaining capitalist hegemony, the dominance of the ruling class, and the ideological and cultural spheres. Under that lens of analysis, the polarizing arguments over cultural issues between pro-capitalist media corporations like Fox and Carlson's former employer, MSNBC, even as they align on economic and foreign policy, can be seen as a kind of full-spectrum dominance over American news consumers. So is the culture war, in your opinion, a purposeful distraction from debate over economic and foreign policy by elected representatives and the media alike? And if so, uh, why do we fall for that distraction? Yeah, I think that's what I, I think that's exactly what it is. And we fall for the distraction because it's emotional. It's it's emotional. Like, you know, I mean, who doesn't have like, you know, gay, uh, LGBT, trans, whatever friends who are, are, you know, being humiliated all the time, microaggression the whole time. I mean, you want to be you want to be there for your friends and stuff. So it is like um, but it's I mean it's used as a, it's manipulative and it's used as a distraction and it, it hasn't really caught in Brazil the same way. I mean, it's, it's caused, to be honest, it's caused Lula after, you know, the last 40 years, he said he supported the women's right to, to choose with abortion. It's forced him you know, two weeks ago to say he's against abortion personally, you know? So he's just trying to, I mean, everyone knows he isn't, but that's just how, I mean, he was, he was worried. That, I mean, it's just a tough, it's just a really tough election, basically. You you know, so, and they're, they're using that culture war stuff the whole time, but it's not as strong here as it is in the United States. You well, also had an article at fair.org in September, PBS and BBC team up to misinform about Brazil's Bolsonaro. In that article, you conclude the fact that U.S. and British state affiliated media outlets would promote misleading narratives less than a month before the most complicated Brazilian presidential election in modern history is another sad example of the long tradition of Western media facilitating imperialist meddling in Latin American elections. But here in the States, as you know, very few people would recognize that as imperialism. How do misleading narratives, in this case about Bolsonaro and Lula, facilitate Western imperialism? They weaken international solidarity. You know, they weaken solidarity. That's why I was down on on Jacobin for a while, you know, during the coup period, because it weakens all these American progressives and leftists got completely confused about the PT because all of these Brooklyn hipsters, you know, just say, no, you're not left. I, I pay uh, whatever. 50% of my income tax goes to the industrial military complex, but you're not left wing enough for my rigorous standards. <laughs> All right, I got one last question for you, Brian. And as you know, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And this one's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. You write that censorship is an emotionally laden term in the United States, a country whose citizens grow up being told they live in the land of the free. It is arrogant and imperialist, however, to believe that all other countries in the world should have the same interpretation of free speech that the U.S. does. It is... It, 
it is true that Bolsonaro had several videos about COVID-19 pulled off the air, but it wasn't done by big tech companies, as some have said, and only happened after a lengthy congressional investigation into criminal negligence in response to the pandemic. After hearing hundreds of witnesses and looking over thousands of pages of evidence, Brazil's multipartisan Congress found that Bolsonaro had deliberately used social media to convince followers that ineffective treatments like chloroquine, worm medicine, and blowing ozone into the anus cured COVID-19 and that, therefore, it was unnecessary to follow state and municipal public health care systems, social distancing, or uh, vaccination guidelines. They concluded that he sabotaged Brazil's COVID-19 response and that this, in turn, had caused 300,000 additional deaths. They accused him of abuse of authority, a crime for which he is currently under review by the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and which he will uh, certainly be formally accused of in Brazil. Brazil as soon as he leaves office. And Brian, the moment that happens, the international media and its audience from far right to left will be told that Lula has overstepped his power by arresting the political opposition, which is what socialists all were told always do without reporting on the very long deliberations over charging Bolsonaro with abusive power, leading to the loss of hundreds of thousands of Brazilian lives. Will continuing the pursuit of justice in the loss of hundreds of thousands of Brazilian lives unnecessarily to COVID, can, can following that investigation by the rule of law lead to Lula's downfall as the media outside and inside Brazil will package that story as one of authoritarianism and Lula silencing the political opposition? I don't think so, because Lula always delegates really well. Uh, he's not going to like personally arrest Bolsonaro. He's just going to maintain all of the criminal procedures that are underway ongoing. So it will be the federal police, maybe, that, that arrest Bolsonaro. You know, and the federal police, he's always granted a lot of autonomy to. So, I mean, the, if they want to twist it around and say his failure to pardon Bolsonaro is an example of authoritarianism, they can try. But I don't think that's what's going to, you know, if he wins this Sunday, and if they let him take power, and if he starts governing, I don't think that would be the issue that would lead to his downfall or to the first coup attempt against him. Because we know that the minute he takes office, there's going to be coup attempts in the works. Um, I think that his big worry is probably just getting impeached over anything. You know? So he's going to have to do a lot of wheeling and dealing and make a lot of compromises with the right to prevent from being impeached. You know, that's always the big thing. That's how that's how Dilma Rousseff blew it. I mean, it's not her fault, you know, but that's what happened to her. And Lula's going to have to make sure something like that doesn't happen to him. And I don't think Glenn Greenwald angrily, drunkenly tweeting out that Lula's authoritarian is going is to bring down the government. Do you think that, again, justice will be weaponized against Lula as it was the last time? Yeah, it's hard to say, but I, I think that there's a lot of people just don't believe in this corruption allegations with Lula anymore because there were so many false allegations. I mean, essentially, we're talking about a guy who still lives in the Gary, Indiana of Sao Paulo, you know, in the same apartment he's been living in for the last 40 years since before he took office. You know, he's not someone with extravagant taste. He doesn't have a 6 million euro apartment in France 
like former President Fernando Henrique Cardoso does. He doesn't drive around, you know, in a limousine or take extravagant vacations. I mean, they tried to accuse him of owning this yacht. And uh, when they when they finally allowed the media to come in and photograph it, it was an 11 foot aluminum boat floating in a tilapia pond. <laughs> you know, they seized his vehicles. One of his vehicles was like a 1983 Ford pickup truck. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so, I mean, his entire bank account. They, they, they Sergio Moro announced we're freezing up to 15 million. You know, reais of his assets. What they found in his bank account is he had less money than half of what Barack Obama was charging for one public speaking engagement. <laughs> uh, and again, uh, anybody who is a resident of Gary, Indiana, please direct your emails to Brian Muir. Well, I'm, I don't mean to say it in a bad way. I, it's just like it's literally an industrial satellite city of Sao Paulo with factories. It's a factory, you know, suburb. Brian. I don't mean to say like, you know, it's the place where the Brazilian Michael Jackson was born. <laughs> I did. I remember uh, back in the aughts. Uh, now I'm forgetting the name of the mayor of Indiana at the time, or mayor of Gary at the time. Uh, they just put it in a new train stop and the train stop had a bridge mm-hmm. that would take you directly to where the man, uh, Gary's minor league baseball team plays to their stadium. And he was on TV saying, what's great about this stop is you can now go see a Gary minor league baseball game without mm-hmm. ever having to set foot in Gary. That was the mayor of Gary telling people that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a sign of the decadence of American capitalism that you have places like Gary. Like my, my wife, who grew up in another one of these industrial suburbs next door to where Lula's from, uh, of Sao Paulo. And Sao Paulo is so big, this industrial suburb has 800,000 people living in it. Wow. I took her to visit Michael Jackson's birthplace in Gary last year when we were in Chicago, you know, and she was just blown away at how fucked up <laughs> Gary, Indiana is like, there's, she said, there's nothing in Brazil like this. She couldn't believe it. <laughs> and Brazil's a much poorer country than, I mean, like if you go into a poor neighborhood in Brazil, you see lots of kids playing on the street. You see like parents keeping an eye on other people's kids. There's life, there's commerce, you know, she was just blown away at, at and, you know, St. Louis, Cleveland, all of these places. Oh, thank God you didn't mention Detroit. I really appreciate that, Brian. <laughs> she want, she would love to go to Detroit. She wanted to go, but we couldn't make it. Well, next time you're in town with your wife, uh, I will take you on a tour of what is left of Detroit, of what I remember of Detroit. Brian, it's always a pleasure hearing your voice. Thank you so much. After the election, after I get back from break, uh, we'll talk again because I want to make sure that people stay up to date on what's happening within Brazil. Thank you so much. You know I truly appreciate it, and thank you for everything that you've always done for our show. I really Really do appreciate it. It's always a great pleasure, Chuck, and I'm glad you're doing okay. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Take care. All right. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. If what you just heard from Brian Muir on the upcoming elections in Brazil, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell 
Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Earlier today, I was talking about how I will not be here next week. Uh, Lindsay and Dan and Seb will be here hosting uh, their own shows with hand, uh, featuring hand-picked interviews from our 26-year archive. But uh, there will be a new Patreon podcast next week on Thursday, so... Stay tuned in for that as well. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, here in the U.S., we have an election on Tuesday, November 8th. Whether in the States or not, wherever and whenever your next election is, what is the worst possible outcome? So we have a few responses on Facebook. Neil C., says the worst possible outcome of the next election is absolutely no change whatsoever. Okay. Fabio AJ uh, says that there is no more election. No, no, there you go. (laughs) That would be... I don't know if that's the worst possible outcome. Let's see. Uh, SLS says the ghosts of Reagan and Thatcher run everything. (laughs) Oh, wait, that's the same as Neil C's answer, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. And nice callback to Neil C's answer. I yeah, appreciate that. I like that. that. I very like nice. that very kind. There. Very kind. <clears throat> uh, then we have a couple responses on Twitter from um, Ahmed S. The victory of a herd of right wing self proclaimed feminist male rabbits with anarchist tendency. <laughs> Okay. That sounds like I don't one of the best options out there. I'm going to have to like, read that a few times opinion. and try to envision it. <laughs> Here, I, let's, I one more to, time. Yeah. The victory of a herd of right-wing self-proclaimed feminist male rabbits <laughs> with anarchist tendency. <laughs> all, right, all right. The right-wing is throwing me off there, but me the rest too. sounds pretty good. I know, exactly. <laughs> so the last response from Todd H. is the worst possible outcome of the next election no clear winners in any election, and therefore six more months of political ads. Oh, that does sound like <laughs> that the does worst. sound bad. <laughs> that sounds yeah, horrible. Yeah, yeah. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. And check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. At our Facebook page, you can tweet it at us, you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. On this week's Moment, Jeff reports on some old DNA he found. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week when Dan Hill will be sitting in and producing. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, on October 27th, 1922, 100 years ago this week, after several years of... By the way, this is all about fascism, so it's perfectly in synchronous with uh, the rest of today's... uh, conversation that we were having with Brian Muir. On October 27, 1922, 100 years ago this week, after several years of violence and intimidation in the wake of World War I, Italian fascists stage an insurrection, the so-called March on Rome. Across the country, fascist thugs, the so-called black shirts, had barricaded railways, ransacked bookstores, destroyed newspaper printing presses, occupied municipal buildings, and telephone exchanges, and had clashed in the streets with socialists and communists. You know, 
It's what fascists do. Terrorize, intimidate, and physically attack any opposition to fascism. Now, they were intent on bringing about an overthrow of Italy's liberal government. The leader of the National Fascist Party, one Benito Mussolini, was a 39-year-old former newspaper editor. Who knew? He had begun his own career as a socialist, but had been kicked out of the party for his strident public statements that were increasingly nationalistic and militaristic. Who knew that speaking and acting like a fascist would get you kicked out of the Socialist Party. I thought it would take more than that. Mussolini did not participate in the March on Rome itself, which in any case was not as massive as hyped because fascism never, ever lives up to its hype. But Mussolini arrived at Rome in the march's immediate wake to declare that if he and the fascists were not put in power, they would take the city by force. It was a bluff because most fascist threats... If not all, are bluffs, just like most of what fashions claim is hype, backed by little to no evidence. The fascists who marched on Rome numbered only about 30 or 40,000, and many were unarmed. Official government troops and police could have put them down easily. Italy's prime minister at the time, Luigi Facta, he sought a declaration of martial law and state of siege, which required the assent of Italy's king, Victor Emmanuel III, just to be clear, in order to stop the fascists, they had to implement martial law, rather fascist in itself, and put the monarchy in power, which sounds pretty authoritarian. But to Facta's dismay, the king refused to sign the decree, apparently sympathizing with the fascists and fearing the possibility of a civil war that might remove him from the throne. A fearful monarchy siding with fascists? Now there's a surprise. So the military was never called to defend the existing government, and Prime Minister Facta resigned. Meanwhile, Italian business interests and many conservative politicians thought that if Mussolini were given power, they could keep him under their control and thereby curtail the power of the Italian left. Business leaders supporting fascists to reign in leftists. Yeah, that sounds exactly right. And believing that they can actually control a fascist, even though they can't, that sounds perfectly accurate as well. So with this right-wing support and with various left-wing and center-left parties infighting among themselves instead of uniting against him, in other words, the same old, same old, Mussolini was able to intimidate the king into choosing him as prime minister to form a new government. This thinly disguised coup d'etat with a superficial veneer of constitutionality put Mussolini on track to consolidate his power, neutralize parliament, and eventually establish the fascist dictatorship several years later. And every part of that sounds frighteningly possible today in so many countries around the world, and not only in Italy. Just think if the U.S. only had a fearful and easily intimidated monarch, Trump could still be president. That's rotten history, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow is going to be Sudeep Bhattacharya, and he will talk about his article at hardcrackers.com, Socialism or Suburbia. Sudeep is a doctoral candidate at, in political science at Rutgers University. He is also a writer, organizer, and you can find his other work at outlets like Protean Magazine and Counterpunch. And I believe he's also a Patreon subscriber, so thank you for that, Sudeep. And of course, we will have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show. 
podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing Live from Late Capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.